Welcome to CineStudy, an incomparable extravaganza featuring film breakdown, analysis, and overall good times. Now for our fourth episode, you were never really here. Hello, and welcome to episode four of CineStudy. I'm your host, Dylan, and today I'm again flying solo. Hopefully that's uh, not a bad thing to you, as I hope I can provide some interesting insight on today's movie, which is 2017's You Were Never Really Here, directed by Lynn Ramsey. This film stars Joaquin Phoenix in the title role of Joe, and it's time to give you the IMDb plot synopsis. According to IMDb, this film is A traumatized veteran, unafraid of violence, tracks down missing girls for a living. When a job spins out of control... Joe's nightmares overtake him as a conspiracy is uncovered, leading to what may be his death trip or his awakening. So there's your IMDb plot synopsis. Now let me give you what I like to call the crash course on You Were Never Really Here, aka everything you need to know about this movie without going into my opinions on the film. So as I mentioned, this movie is directed by Lynn Ramsey, who directed such films as We Need to Talk About Kevin in 2011, Morvern Caller in 2002, and Ratcatcher in 1999. She seemed to have taken a hiatus after Morvern Caller, which came out in 2002, not directing another film until 2011's We Need to Talk About Kevin. Then she sort of revitalized, directing Swimmer in 2012, and finally You Were Never Really Here, coming out in 2017. Currently, this movie holds a 6.9 out of 10 stars on IMDb, and it falls in fifth place among Lynn Ramsey's films, although that is actually including one of her short films, actually two of her short films, I apologize. So truly, it comes in third, if you're just counting feature-length films. Now, if you look at some of her other things, they don't have a ton of big stars in them. Uh, You can make the exception with We Need to Talk About Kevin, which featured Tilda Swinton and John C. Riley, who I would say are two pretty notable names, but everything else is usually just one person carrying the film, or people that you've never even heard of. For instance, when I look at Morvern Caller, I don't know any of these people. That might just be me, but it's true. Lynn Ramsey has a very artistic style, I would say. I would kind of describe it as art house. I'm not sure what technically qualifies as art house, but I would say she sort of falls into that category of artsy kind of stuff. You Were Never Really Here did not get nominated for a ton of big awards. It won some stuff at Con or Cons. I, I think it's Con, right? Nah, I probably sound really stupid right now. But that included Best Screenplay and Best Actor for Joaquin Phoenix. So it did take home some awards there, but no big Oscars or anything like that. But that's not to say it's a bad or good movie. We're going to talk about that in the near future on this show. So what else do you need to know about this movie? Well, I'll talk to you about my brief history with this movie. I actually hadn't heard of this director, and the two things that gripped me were that Joaquin Phoenix is in it who I'm a huge fan of and follows in my top 10 actors of all time. I'm not going to say the order. I guess it's not all time. It's my top 10 favorites, personally. But he's in there. I won't say which spot, because I think we're going to do an episode on that eventually. So that gripped me, and honestly, for the first time ever, a critic review featured on a poster gripped me, and that was that it said, Taxi Driver for a New Generation. I was kind of surprised at this. I was like, that's a pretty bold description, right? So I'm like, yeah, let's give it a watch, and we'll uh, we'll figure out what I think of it. Joaquin Phoenix, as you know, is a pretty big actor from films such as Gladiator, uh, Walk the Line, The Master, Her, 
and just a bunch of other stuff. His performances are far-ranging in the characters he portrays, whether it be a real-life person such as Johnny Cash or a psychotic follower of some sort of Scientology spinoff in The Master, a movie I will definitely talk about at some point. And in this film, he's basically left to his own devices. If you look at the cast, there's pretty much no other notable names, and it's a very small cast anyway, so it's really about his story as a character. I'd say that's about it for Crash Course. Crash Course is not supposed to be all-inclusive, and it's definitely not fully fleshed out, and I can't promise every detail I mentioned is true. I just follow IMDb. But the whole idea is I'm just giving you a general sense, and if you really want to know more about this movie, you can watch it and research it and do all you want with it. But that wraps up Crash Course, so now we're going to jump into the performances, and there's really not many to cover, as I mentioned, because it's kind of Joaquin Phoenix taking first billing and then a list of other random supporting characters that have maybe five minutes in the movie, but that's not the big thing right now. We're going to talk about the performances, and we will obviously start with Joaquin Phoenix. Listen, I don't know what the f*** going on here. I'm just a hired gun. I don't give a shit about <laughs> So as I mentioned... Joaquin Phoenix plays a very traumatized man in this movie, and I'd say he does a very good job of depicting just how broken the character is. Sometimes it can be a bit bland, but that is only when you have some of these scenes where it's really just him doing menial tasks that have not much pertaining to the movie. They're just supposed to kind of emphasize this idea of him moving through this kind of broken and uh, devastated life. In a way, this reminds me of Bronson in terms of arc, where you're, there is a plot, more of a plot to this one, but that it is more of a character study and seeing how this guy acts even just in everyday life or the relationships of those around him. Joaquin Phoenix has a very, very, very special talent for acting and can play a large variety of characters. And in this case, he's playing a very subdued character. You're kind of just focused on some of his facial expressions that are very, very slight. There, there's no big selling of emotion or huge breakdowns or emphasis on this character. It's very subdued, as I mentioned. But Joaquin Phoenix does a good job of making that at least somewhat interesting because I could see that many other actors and, honestly, many directors would struggle with a character like this or oversell the character. But this is done in a, very, in a, in a way that's not in your face, but you can still really get into what the character is thinking. At the same time, you don't always. He can be unpredictable, and sometimes you don't know his uh, motivations or reasoning for his actions. But that's more of the writing, which we'll cover eventually. In terms of acting, though, Joaquin Phoenix does a good job with what he's given. This isn't a show-stopping performance by any means. It's not even Joaquin Phoenix's best performance, but that's easy to make a case for a lot of other movies that he's done for his best performance. I'd say it's it's solid work, but I like pretty much anything he does. Um, as usual, like I said, his facial work and even some of his voice work is very uh, unusual and interesting to watch. His whole physical appearance really fits the character. But again, it's no big pulling out all the stops performance where he's going all out into any emotions. It's very, I keep using this word, but it's very subdued. It's very laid back. It's, it's following his character, it's studying his character, but not in a way where you're exploring all his different emotions. You're really just watching how he deals with his life and some of the work he does in his life. But overall, yeah, good job, Joaquin Phoenix. I'd say it's a solid performance. Obviously not his best, but not his worst or anything like that. And uh, for a movie where it's pretty much just focused on him, as it was with Bronson, honestly, these are two kind of similar movies, uh, he does a good job of being interesting, uh, though some of the directorial choices may take away from how you view uh, his depictions of the character of Joe. But I'd say, overall, pretty pretty decent performance. 
All right, other performances, like I said, there's really not many, even less than I'll mention for Bron- than I mentioned for Bronson. We have Judith Roberts playing Joe's mother. Uh, this is kind of a significant plot point: is the relationship between Joe and his mother. The mom's really nothing special. She's she's kind of fun to watch in some of her scenes, but really she's not in the movie all that much. She does a good job of pre- playing kind of a, a mom who's a bit... Um, sometimes can be fed up with her son, sometimes can be very uh, close with her son, but it's just just generally senile, and it's an okay performance. It's really not much special. You could pretty much put anyone else in the role of Joe's mother, and it would be fine. Really, nobody else in this cast is uh, a known actor or actress, but eh, it's fine. I, I You know, take it or leave it. She's just kind of there. Uh, the other big character we have is Nina Vado. Uh, this is a young actress named Ekaterina Samsonov. Hopefully I pronounced that sort of right. Um, she was in Wonderstruck, apparently. I'm just looking at her IMDb, but she hasn't done a ton of stuff. Uh, she's okay. I think she plays... She does a very good job of playing a girl who is similarly broken to Joe. There's a lot of parallels between their characters, in my opinion. And I think that is a big point of the movie, uh, as Nina is one of the girls that uh, Joe is set to rescue. As you know, Joe's whole job is tracking down missing girls. She's kind of the main one. And uh, I'd say she does a good job. She doesn't have to show much emotion because she's supposed to be kind of disillusioned with everything that's going on. But as far as, you know, young or teen actors go, I'd say she's all right. Um, Again, take it or leave it. Really nothing special in the performances of this movie. Joaquin Phoenix kind of takes the cake if you had to pick a best performance. And the last character I want to mention is John McCleary, played by John Doman. Eh, it's fine. He doesn't really do anything either. Really not much to mention about these performances. Uh, Alex Minette as Senator Albert Votto, also in just like two or three scenes. Really, actually, now that I'm thinking, just one. So, he doesn't do much either. So, in terms of acting, really just look at Joaquin Phoenix. Does a really good job of being troubled, showing emotion when he needs to, but again, being very subdued with it. You're getting into the character, it gets under your skin, it may bore some, but I think it's a pretty interesting study in his acting. Alright, so now let's talk about the direction of You Were Never Really Here. Uh, it does remind me of Bronson, really a lot of this movie reminds me of Bronson in terms of its stylistic choices. Uh, it's a little bit more bland than what Nicholas Winding Refn was able to achieve, in my opinion. Here we have a very interesting color palette that it's always a, uh, like I, I keep saying this word, but it is a subdued color palette, but it always fits the scene. It's not just the same color as Bronson. I know I keep comparing this to Bronson, but it is nice that you can have sort of a frame of reference. And some of the scenes really do pop in their color, whether it be on the city streets or at this countryside estate towards the end of the movie, or, uh whether it be using lighting really well so that just the main characters are illuminated or in a way where it's kind of fluorescent and uh, everything is kind of washed out. And at the same time, a lot has this. A lot of the movie has this kind of warm coloring to it and uh, does pretty well, I would say. I, I really like the, uh, the lighting of the movie. In terms of makeup and all that stuff, uh, nothing special. Joaquin Phoenix has a beard. That's about it. I really enjoyed the cinematography of this movie. There's a lot of really, really cool-looking shots. Uh, some kind of Wes Anderson-ish shots, uh, is the best way I can put it, where things are kind of dead on. Really, really cool shot where Joaquin Phoenix is underwater, and there's this green lighting to it, and, um, 
he's just illuminated in this column of green light. That's a, a really excellent shot there. A lot of uh, interesting shots. Some people might see it as kind of just experimental in terms of cinematography, but I really, really enjoy some of the uh, the looks the director is able to achieve. I'll mention some of the more specific ones later on, I, I'm sure, because I don't want to spoil some things. Uh, there's definitely a couple I have in mind to mention. But more on to, again, the directorial uh, aspect of this movie. The movie's a very slow-burning movie. It has more of a plot than Bronson does, but it's still kind of slow-moving. We spend a lot of time watching uh, Joaquin Phoenix do some pretty just kind of uninteresting tasks, but they do work in selling his character at times. You just have to kind of pay attention to the significance of some of the things he's doing, whether it be uh, symbolism or really demonstrating just how kind of traumatized he is from his past, whether it be his childhood or war or whatever. Again, I think my favorite things in this movie that uh, Lynn Ramsey kind of had a hand in would be the lighting that uh, that is orchestrated, as well as the cinematography. I really, really enjoy the cinematography. Again, some people might not even... Uh, again, most people who even don't look at cinematography will pick up at some of these shots and just how interesting they are in terms of angles or or how they are set up. And so I really enjoy that. Clearly, Lynn Ramsey likes this kind of slow-building idea where you're really just more invested in the character than the plot. That will bore a lot of people more so than some of these other movies that uh, use the same effect, whether it be Bronson. Again, I keep bringing that up, but it's all right. I kind of have to. I do enjoy that some of the moments in this film will kind of shock you out of nowhere from the monotony of some of the other things that have been happening to now these sudden bursts of whether it be violence or action or uh, a significant twist or whatever. So I really enjoy that aspect of it. I, I think that's always interesting when it's a uh, a small, when it's a very slow-moving film that then bursts into action really quickly. Really, this film is a combination of Drive and Bronson. If you're a fan of those movies, you'll probably like this movie. Uh, but at the same time, you might not. It doesn't achieve those effects as well. It's a character study. It's uh, slow-moving. It's got these bursts of violence and action. But I really, really enjoy the cinematography, whether it just be shots of a rearview mirror that are taken really well to see... Joaquin Phoenix's eyes, whether it be the shots where he's just walking through a hardware store, picking up hammers to use to uh, go in and take the girls back that he's trying to rescue. It's truly really cool to watch the uh, to watch the shots that are laid out. I'd also say uh, kind of quiet is used to an advantage here. There's not a ton of score to this movie, but they also do bring in some voiceovers and sound effects that are also really effective in the scenes they're in. But the the movie does make a good use of quiet, not to the pinnacle of, uh, say, No Country for Old Men, which I don't think can be touched in the realm of silent tension. But this movie does achieve it pretty well at times. Um, the one thing I do say the director lacks is kind of creating suspense at times. You're waiting for uh, you know things to happen so that Joe can break in or whatever, but there's really no tension where there should be. And I wish Lynn Ramsey could capture that a little bit better, but I think it's more like I said, geared about the character than the character's actions. You're just seeing kind of his personality evolve rather than, you know, the whole uh, aspect of breaking in and stealing these kids. It's not an action scene, as you might say. I do like the effect is that Lynn Ramsey uh, does a couple shots through security cameras that look really cool. Sometimes that gimmick can grow old, but this one really achieves it well. So not much else to say about the uh, directing. Again, I really like kind of the color palette that's used that varies from scene to scene, but is always kind of slightly off the primary color that it's uh, embodying. And I can't say enough about the cinematography. I really, really enjoyed the cool shots of this movie. I'll mention some more specific ones in the spoiler section. So now let's move on to kind of the uh, post things. We already kind of covered some of it, 
but I'll just kind of reiterate. So score is fine. They, there's not a huge score to this movie, really. Like I said, it's a lot of kind of uh, just sounds in the background, atmospheric things, as well as, as well as the voiceovers. The voiceovers work really well. The atmospheric things are, you know, nothing special, I would say. Um, the editing's fine. I'd say some of the uh, snaps between, you know, Joe, what Joe's currently doing and then his past life uh, is something we've seen before. I'd say it's used pretty well here. In fact, it's sometimes... Uh, kind of uh, jarring when you cut back to his past for a split second and then come back. You see the parallels between how he grew up. I'd say it's used really well here as opposed to some other ones where you're just seeing a flashback. This is more like something that would, you know, jut into your head real quick, like a tragic memory kind of uh, cuts back into Joe's mind. And I'd say that's a really cool effect they achieve through editing is kind of splicing in these shots uh, every now and then in the movie. And sometimes, I'll be honest, uh, they'll make you jump. Uh, Screenplay-wise, there's not a whole lot of dialogue in this movie, and the dialogue that is there is nothing special. Uh, I believe the screenplay was written in part by Lynn Ramsey and possibly someone else. I'm verifying right now. Uh, Lynn Ramsey, and then based on a book. Oh, so this was based on a book. I should have put that in the crash course. I apologize. But uh, this is a book by Jonathan Ames, and Lynn Ramsey wrote the screenplay. I have no idea how accurate to the book it is, but I'd say in terms of dialogue, there's really not that much of it. It's a lot of visual storytelling, which is something I really enjoy. It's not done as well as some other films have done it. And sometimes you may even be a little confused of the significance of a few characters or who's on what side or whatever. Um, So some of the plot can get a little murky at times, but you just kind of have to pay attention. And again, really, there's not a huge screenplay to it, and the dialogue that there is that is there is pretty generic. So don't go in expecting some really witty or dramatic or intense dialogue. It's just kind of there. All right, I think we pretty much did all the post things. There's no like CGI things or anything. Some of the color grading is uh, really cool. Like I said, some of the uh, color palettes used might have been achieved through editing. I'm not entirely sure, but it looks really nice. So that wraps up all the post things, as I like to call it. So let's go on to the overall budget and gross. So, again, I get these numbers off IMDb, and they're not always accurate. So if you really want to know what it made and its budget and all that, you know, do your best to find it. I'll do my best. So its budget actually hasn't been uh, announced, it seems, because it's not on IMDb or Box Office Mojo or Wikipedia. All I know is that it had a very, very small budget, and... You know, rightfully so. There's no big effects that needed to be achieved here. There's just some cool set design at times that I'm sure required some extra prep. Its domestic total gross is $2,528,078. Uh, that is the number that is also on IMDb. So it appears there's no official international gross either, unfortunately. Uh, that is what you will find with some of these movies. Actually, come to think of it, it appears that this movie either was not released internationally or was released very limitedly because if you look at the domestic and the worldwide they are about the same so what the number i just mentioned is pretty much the worldwide as well so i it definitely made back its money i'm sure because it had a very very small budget um but it was no box office hit in fact i'm pretty sure it wasn't released in most theaters it was very limited it was an amazon studios movie so those don't always come to theaters obviously um so i'm sure it profited a little bit but it was no blockbuster The score is composed by Johnny Greenwood, who has done some really, really good work in the past, but here it really doesn't grasp me. There's nothing too special about the score in this movie.
I want to talk about the plot a little bit because I gave you the plot synopsis in which we have Joe played by Joaquin Phoenix, obviously, and he is going around, he's rescuing kidnapped girls, that's how he makes his living, and one job is probably going to go wrong or have one job that's going to be, you know, your stereotypical one more job, one big job, one risky job, that kind of thing. That's basically the part of this movie, but I want to mention this because that's more of the guiding concept. That's obviously what's what you're tracking Joe doing throughout the movie, but there's a lot more layers to really just the fact that you're studying Joe, you're looking into his emotions, you're looking into his actions. It's not so much this gritty action, breaking in with hammers and killing people to rescue kidnapped girls. So definitely don't go in expecting this kind of full-throttle action movie. It's the same thing as Drive, where you have the general concept, but it's really a bunch of other uh, kind of slow-burn elements that make up the plot itself. So again, don't go in expecting Joaquin Phoenix to go in and just wreck some people with hammers. As much as I would have liked to have seen that, that's not what this is. It's Again, it's just a character study more so than you know some big, almost heist-like movie in that he's breaking into places and doing whatever. It's really nothing like that, so don't get any expectations in that regard. A lot of people have thought that about movies like this and other ones. Again, it's very subdued. You're just following this character as he does it, and that's the guiding principle of what he's doing, but it's not the focus of what he's doing by any means. So just wanted to throw that out there. All right, so it's time to give You Were Never Really Here a rank, and as you know, we use our 1 to 10, but it's not stars. It's usually some item ranging in the movie and uh today i'm going to repeat hammers so we have hammers for thor but there could be no better option than hammers for you were never really here so i'm going to give you were never really here a seven out of ten hammers it's a little bit less than bronson in my opinion truly it edges on a six but it is one of those movies i really respect artistically even though it doesn't grasp me fully in terms of its plot and everything i'll talk about that in my overall opinion uh in just a moment but again, so 7 out of 10, that's not bad. It's not great either, but, you know, I respect it artistically. I respect what the director was going for here. And I'd say it does a pretty good job. And again, Joaquin Phoenix really pulls a lot of this movie for me. Okay, so it's time for some overall thoughts and why to watch this movie before we delve into the spoiler section. So overall, what did I think? Well, you saw my score. It was a 7. Not great, uh, but not bad. Like I said, it edges more on a 6 just because it doesn't accomplish what it's going for as effectively as I feel it could have. But I think overall it tells a sort of interesting story. It's an interesting concept at the very least. It has a great performance by Joaquin Phoenix, I would say. And that's more just because I'm biased towards Joaquin Phoenix. I just really enjoy him as an actor. And this is by no means his best performance. Really not even close when it comes to some of his best performances. But he's still somewhat interesting to watch, even though, like I've mentioned, he's very subdued. He's not showing a ton of emotion in this movie. And the scenes that he does, it doesn't explode out as much as you might want it to or expect it to. But I'd still say, uh, you know, it's a decent movie. Uh, But let's just get this overall out of the way because I've already delved into all these categories. You already heard my opinions. And instead, just focus on why you should watch this movie. Now, I do this for a movie, whether it's good or bad, because there's always something to enjoy or something to focus on in a movie. Here, there's actually quite a few things. I would say the cinematography is a great thing to watch this movie for. I'd say the colors are a fantastic thing to watch this movie for. The way this movie plays with light and its color palette is really, really enjoyable. There's some great shots, uh, whether it be underwater or just standing in a field. As I've mentioned, both of those shots, they look fantastic. So cinematography and lighting are amazing in this movie. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix's performance is solid. Again, it's not his best, but I think it's, uh, it's one worth watching if you're into him 
or if you want a study in his acting, it's probably part of the portfolio I would develop for his acting. And I think this movie makes pretty good use of um, voiceover and uh, soundtrack that a lot of movies fail to use well, especially voiceover. The, uh, this movie uses voiceover at a, quite a few scenes, and it's never a direct tie-in to the scene. It's more of this kind of side thing. They have to think about what the implications or the relevance of those voiceovers are. But more importantly, I'd say this movie plays with the flashback very well. A lot of movies can use the flashback as a very cliched subject to just, you know, uh, to just deepen their character without really having to try. And I think this movie does it very well by just splicing little scenes of it. So you never get bored with it, but it always leaves uh, an imprint in your mind. You're always, you always know that that's a very powerful moment that you just witnessed or something that has real deep meaning to the story now. So I'd say the flashback is used much better than a lot of movies do in this movie. Because, again, like I said, it's usually just quick, and it's usually of significance. It's not just some long backstory of, oh, this man, and he had his heart broken, and he lost his family, or whatever, which neither of those things are part of this story. I was just thinking of some cliched flashbacks. But I'd say, in general, this movie does take some cliched things and makes them work. Like I said, voiceover, uh, flashback... They all do it in interesting ways where you're never bored with it and you're never rolling your eyes at it. It's always actually very interesting and, like I've mentioned, relevant to the story. So just to rattle off again, you should watch this because Joaquin Phoenix gives a pretty good performance, I'd say. You should definitely watch it for the lighting and cinematography. This movie looks incredible. And you should probably watch it if you want an interesting new take on some of these cliched movie topics, voiceovers, flashbacks, and even plot twists. This movie does have a couple of little twists, but they're minor ones. And they're always depicted in very interesting ways where it's not heavy-handed in what's just been done. It's always more of a quick thing where you're suddenly very surprised and it's not forcing it at you as much as like, oh, look at this great big twist. It's more like, all right, here's something that's going to come up that Joe now has to deal with. So I do enjoy that, and uh, I think there is another aspect of this movie that I can't really mention uh, without delving into spoilers. That will be another reason you should watch it, but I'll obviously mention that in the spoiler section. So that's about it for why you should watch it, my overall thoughts. You've heard, you've heard me say you're never really here. It's about a 7. It's not for everyone because, again, it's this kind of style over substance feel that we got from Bronson. Not done as effectively as Bronson, but still done with some interesting factors that Bronson doesn't include. Most notably to me being kind of color. I think this movie uses color very well. But I'd definitely say this movie is worth checking out, as I feel all movies really are in one way or another. Even the bad movies are going to be worth watching for one way or another, even if that's a study in what not to do. But again, that's You Are Never Really Here. Uh, thank you for listening to this spoiler-free section. We're about to delve into the spoiler section. So again, thank you for listening to Cine Study. Please subscribe. We'll be growing in terms of social media presence in the near future, whether that be some of the main accounts, uh, you know, Facebook, Twitter, those kind of things. I can't guarantee what will happen and what won't, as well as uh, YouTube, so you can listen on there as well. That'll definitely be an option. Uh, one of these days, I'll make some sort of episode where I describe all the services we have this on in case you're listening on one and you want to learn on more. We'll just be expanding all this stuff, making sure we have lots of platforms available, lots of kind of branding and social media, as I mentioned, and really just grow this to the best of our ability. So again, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And also, you know, leave us a rating if you'd like, uh, you know, just to help us kind of get a jump start. But again, that's it for the spoiler-free section. So thank you for listening to Cinestudy Episode 4, You Were Never Really Here. And if you're still listening, welcome.
to the spoiler section. The following audio will contain countless spoilers and discussions of significant character arcs and plot points. You've been warned. Don't ruin the movie for yourself. Unless, of course, do you want to? Cinestudy is not liable. Disclaimer. Unfortunately, few clips were available to insert into this episode's analysis. Hopefully that won't detract too much from your viewing experience. Anyway, on with the show. Alright, welcome to the spoiler section of You Were Never Really Here, where I'm going to go through all the plot developments, character arcs, narratives, themes, all that, to the best of my ability, scene by scene. I try to get a, a certain level of depth. Obviously, I'm not going too extreme with it, taking it to any extremes. But I do want to give you an idea of my reactions kind of scene by scene so you can compare your viewing to mine and maybe get some insight you didn't have. Though some of these movies that I give, not necessarily lower scores, but I guess they're not my favorite movies. I'm not going to go as deep into the analysis as you might like. That's just a personal thing as I find the themes muddled or not portrayed very well or overall not very important to the story. There's some themes to this movie I'll mention, but I'm not going to go full on analyzing it as I might do with some of my tens. But anyway, that just kind of sets the scene for you. So let's go right into my analysis, scene by scene, spoilerful once again, I'll warn you, of You Were Never Really Here. So the movie opens with this kind of white noise as you stare upon uh, the logos coming in and this black background that fades into these kind of green specks. And we hear this kind of voiceover of counting down from various numbers. Now, this is something I mentioned in the spoiler-free section. This pops up a lot in this movie at certain times. And it's basically, as far as I read into it, it is Joaquin Phoenix's character, Joe, kind of reflecting on what he used to do as a child. Uh, This is more revealed later on in the movie, so I won't mention it too much here. But we cut and we see Joaquin Phoenix kind of a side angle of his head and he's breathing kind of heavily with his face in this plastic bag. Now, upon first viewing, I thought he was being taken captive or something weird like that. Turns out he's just kind of getting high off of this uh, experience of almost suffocating himself, and he does it quite a few times in this movie, and it has some significance that we'll mention later. We get some kind of quick shots of a kid staring straight into the camera. No meaning is given behind this yet. Uh, And we see then Joe take the plastic bag off, and go about some certain tasks. Now, these tasks clearly clearly reflect that he's just finished one of his jobs of rescuing one of these kidnapped girls. Now, I speak on all these things after having watched the entire movie. If you're watching these first scenes, some of these things are not very, very apparent. That is one criticism I had with this movie is, while it's trying to get kind of abstract with some of the flashbacks and stuff, sometimes you can't tell what's going on present day, what's going on uh, at what point in the timeline or in the sequence. So that can get a little muddled. Now that I have seen the movie, I'll reflect on it in a way where I'm mentioning everything I know as a whole. But again, so we see Joe burning a picture of a girl, obviously a girl he's just rescued. It seems he's pretty much clearing all the evidence of what he's just done. And these shots are laid out pretty nicely. What could be pretty boring uh, menial tasks are given a cool little weight with the cinematography. So we see Joe burning these things. He even burns a Bible, uh, something that I have no idea what the relevance of that was for the rest of the movie. Maybe his loss of purity or whatever. I don't know. I mean, that doesn't make sense because he's in the middle of his career. But, you know, he uncovers the fire alarms where he was burning these things. He's washing off his hammer, and the hammer has blood on it, so he's flushing that down the toilet. We see some shots of some jewelry that says Sandy. Presumably these are kind of belongings of the girl he's just rescued. He's sweeping them all up into a plastic bag. And then we get... After that, 
two of my favorite shots in this movie, actually. We see the door from the outside of Joe's room that says, Do Not Disturb, slightly open. We hear footsteps. The door closes. A woman passes by the room, and this is all done in one kind of long tracking shot. Uh, And then Joe, once she has rounded the corner, exits so that people don't see him. And we get this kind of guitar clanging that comes in. I take back some of what I said about this being kind of an okay score. It is Johnny Greenwood who did There Will Be Blood, so it's kind of these weird, jarring sounds at times. But it's always very fitting of the mood. It's something that I actually didn't really notice upon first viewing, and now that I'm going back through it, I'm actually commenting on it a little bit more. Because now that I watch it, I'm really consciously thinking about what I'm listening to. It always fits every situation, but it never jumps out at you. And I think some of the best scores do that. They just blend into the background and create this kind of atmosphere to the movie. So that's done pretty well. We follow Joe down this hallway, and uh, again, like I said, this second shot is one of my favorites in the movie in terms of just normal tracking pan kind of shots because there's lots of cool just angle shots I love. Uh, like I mentioned, this movie has great cinematography. but uh, And cinematography is one of the things I love to talk about. You'll hear me mention it on pretty much every podcast. I apologize for that if you hate cinematography, but I think it really adds a lot. But anyway, we are basically in the perspective of Joe, I would say, as we come around the into the lobby of the hotel, and as we pass by the window, the camera picks up that there's police cars with alarms outside. So the camera backs up as if it's Joe, like, going, oh, better not go out there right now, and pauses back in the lobby out of view from the police. So I really like that you're kind of put in the shoes of Joe there and seeing what he's seeing without it being too overblown or indulgent. So then we progressively follow Joe as he leaves this uh, hotel that I presume he was staying at during this job. Uh, some guy tries to mug him as we get this first look at Joe. We get his first, we get this first thing of him walking up out of, out of the downstairs, or out of the basement of this building rather. And uh, like I said, some guy tries to mug him. Joe beats him up ruthlessly, and we're getting our first look at him as this music continues to play. This kind of electric, almost reminds me of Drive in a way kind of music. Again, these movies I've been talking about have really tied in this Bronson Drive. I keep mentioning Drive, haven't obviously done an episode on that. Uh, And then we get Joe, he takes a cab ride home. The lighting in this scene looks pretty cool with some of the green light, red light effects. Uh, Always looks good in movies. There's never a time where someone fails to impress me with some of the cool green light, red light effects and how they transfer into emotions of the scene. This case, it's just kind of there as opposed to the direct symbolism that has been used in some other movies of uh, various streetlights and stuff like that. Uh, and the cab driver singing, and uh, we hear him singing, and the volume cuts out on him singing, but we can clearly see him uh, mouthing the words, you were never really here. There's the title as the title card kind of pops up progressively as he sings it, even though we're not hearing him sing it. I could never figure out what this title means. I mean, there's a lot of ways that I could potentially read into it, like uh, Joe's so disillusioned with reality that he was never really in touch with his career and stuff as it kind of... Uh, happens to be this one major job we're following him through. But really, I feel like there could be a lot better titles that aren't this broad and unfortunately long. I don't know. That might just be me. Uh, Joe walks into what looks like an airport. He gets on the phone and simply says, uh, as far as I can remember, I'm done, or something very simple like that, and hangs up the phone. No idea who he was calling or what he was talking about. It is implied that he's talking about the job he just did, or rather he says, it's done, not I'm done. Uh, implying that he has finished his most recent job. He heads home, and we see that he lives with his mother. Uh, His mother pulls a random prank on him that is just one of these moments in this movie that has uh, seemingly no importance that just kind of adds to Joe uh, hanging around and his lifestyle and just getting a better read on him in a way. Uh, And she pranks him that he's sleeping and wakes up or something like that. 
Uh, I could never really figure that out. And he puts her to bed and everything. And there's these ridiculous theories I've read that there's like a big incest plot point, And there is no way you could possibly pull that from this movie without purposely saying, oh, he lives with his mother. And for some reason, that has to be a plot point in this movie. There is nothing that would lead you there. So uh, if you read that theory, I find that one highly suspect. And I don't really know how it adds to Joe's character at all in the first place. Cool silhouettes as he kind of leaves the bedroom, turning off the lights. We see him applying an ice pack, and we get one good look at all these kind of scars and calluses all over him because we know he's a war veteran, even though that hasn't really been alluded to yet in the movie. Uh, And so he's really kind of beaten up from this job and his past, so we see him kind of doing some relaxing exercises, stretches, those kind of things, icing what I just, like I just said. And I want to mention real quick, because I'll probably forget where it pops, or I already say, I certainly do forget where it pops up, but occasionally quick clips are spliced in of Joe in the past, things that are happening to him, and I really love the use of them. They're not overblown in an overly artistic way where it really takes away from the movie. They really move seamlessly with the scenes you're watching, so I really enjoyed that. It's mainly an alternation between uh, him as a child, as I mentioned, putting these plastic bags around his head, and he's holding his ears tight because his parents obviously had a lot of problems. There's obviously a lot of domestic issues, fighting, and probably some physical altercations, or however you want to put it, that occurred there, and he's kind of drowning it all out. And so this happens as Joe has continued this into his current life, as we saw in the first scene. So we kind of get this parallel between things he did in the past and things he does now. The other flashback we get is uh, him kind of lying in the sand and... As far as I could read into it, this was him at war. This flashback gradually zooms out as you see it uh, pop up a couple of times in the movie so that you get a better idea of where he is. But I really couldn't follow too much of that. A lot of the symbolism and stuff like that, I'm sure, is there in this movie, but it's not even all that clear. It's not one where you can just spend some time reading into it and eventually you'll get it. It's more of these just kind of little touches that add to Joe's character in a way that you probably can't even analyze on the surface. It's just subconsciously adding and I mean, it's sort of enjoyable. I can say at the very least, they're quick clips, so it's not like you're spending a lot of time on Joe's past, even though that may flesh out his past a little bit more. You're still getting this idea of the things he's been through and how they impact him today, which I really enjoy. Uh, we see Joe doing some kind of risky, almost like meditation-esque exercises, I guess you could say, where he's like holding a knife above his mouth and like lowering it towards his mouth or dropping a knife from eye level and moving his foot out of the way at the last second as he kind of helps his mom with various tasks, uh, showering, stuff like that. Or, uh, not showering, that was put very wrong, uh, as in uh, cleaning up the bathroom and stuff like that. And eventually he leaves, just get him walking through the streets for a little while. Again, lots of these shots are just kind of him doing boring, useless tasks, but you get this kind of monotony of his life and how he's just kind of stagnant where he is. Uh, He walks in to this convenience store, and there's a kid working there, and Joe gives kind of a bad look to him, a kind of... Uh, look of disappointment and we don't know why until he walks into the back room with the owner of this convenience store whose name is Angel a very minor character in this movie Angel pays him for the job that Joe has obviously just finished and Joe mentions that Angel's son who is the guy we just saw standing out in the convenience store apparently saw him obviously when Joe was coming back from his job or whatever I don't remember I I don't believe this is ever explicitly shown in the movie but Joe mentions this and Joe feeling a little bit Uh, uneasy with this idea that somebody's catching on to his lifestyle that doesn't work directly with him, uh, decides to cut ties with this guy, Angel, who has obviously been helping him through these jobs and splitting the cuts as they're given. So Joe heads out of this convenience store. 
we see him at home helping his mom with some other things. Again, he's kind of like just doing these random tasks, uh, helping her out. They sing this kind of song, and the mom obviously has some problems as she talks about Joe's girlfriend, who's apparently a romance that happened about 20 years ago. So obviously the mom is a lot, has a lot of problems with uh, memory, kind of a little bit off, it seems, even though her and Joe seem to be very close. Uh, we get a pan shot of Joe doing that kind of plastic bag thing, this time sitting in a closet. I think this might be where we get our first splice of him as a child doing the same thing with the arguments of his parents heard in the background. I'm not entirely sure. Don't take my word for that necessarily. At least take it with a grain of salt. But those pop up at certain points in this movie. And I think I've exhausted that. I enjoyed that little concept. We see Joe standing up on a platform uh, above a highway. He kind of bends out of the sun, out of the shade into the sunlight looking over the tracks. There's a lot of allusions, uh, it seems, to that Joe might be suicidal, but we never see any of these kind of actions ever come into fruition or any emotion that would suggest this on Joe's face. Just some of his weird kind of uh, almost relaxing exercises are these kind of risky, dangerous things that uh, I wouldn't, that I don't really understand. That might just be me reading into it differently than some people. There's a lot of ways to interpret some of Joe's actions in this movie, so I'm just going to give you mine, not try and give you the 50 other ones that are out there. Uh, we see Joe is likely returning from a job because there's kind of a beat-up girl next to him watching him as the train arrives. And then Joe heads up to this office where there's this kind of boss guy. Joe sits down on this couch. He's eating jelly beans. This pointless line about how he likes green jelly beans that really has no purpose in this movie. You can't even try to sell me that that has some sort of symbolism or ridiculous layering that adds to Joe's character. It's such a stupid line that I don't know why it's in this movie. The boss tells him that there's like this senator whose daughter is gone. Senator uh, needs some help. Uh, I believe his name is Senator Vado. I might be off on that. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen this movie. I've mentioned this before, but most movies all have come off just watching. Sometimes I'm going to make exceptions for movies. I think I can just knock off a podcast real quick for you guys. And this is a case in point. Anyway, we get a great shot of Joe standing on the other side of the subway train roaring by. We've seen these shots all the time. This one's done pretty well with some cool kind of visual blurred lines, and you just see a shadow. And then he ends up at Senator Votto's, and we have this conversation between the two. You have kids, Joe? Nina. Her name is Nina. I've heard of these places. Underage girls. Senator, if she's there, I'll get her. Cleary said you were brutal. I can be. The senator saying, I hear you're very brutal. I want you to rescue my daughter, who's apparently been kidnapped. He doesn't give a lot of information, as far as I remember, uh, but ends the conversation by saying, basically to Joe, I want you to be very vicious with them. Like, no mercy here. Uh, so Joe puts on his hat, he leaves, and we see him enter this hardware store. This is an unusually uh, cool-looking sequence, as he's just kind of uh, wandering around this store, picking up hammers and various supplies under this harsh like fluorescent lighting uh it's just very artistic looking for something that is very very uh pointless in the grand scheme of things and could have just been done in a quick montage or of just him already having all these materials but that's the case with a lot of the points in this movie is him doing 
pretty, as I mentioned, already menial tasks that are just done semi-artistically. Sometimes it works, like I just mentioned there, and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, Next we get kind of this other layer of him being sort of traumatized and having this kind of PTSD from both his career and his past in war and his childhood. I mean, this guy's had a rough life, obviously, uh, as a group of girls ask him to take their picture. And they're all smiling and stuff, but then we get cuts of them being completely, like, in this kind of stunned look. Um, It's fairly strange. I couldn't pick up any meaning on this except for maybe that all he thinks about when he sees these girls is, you know, his job and that he has a certain level of responsibility he feels in this already tough job in life. Uh, And then we get some more shots of him kind of hanging around. He's kind of suffering a lot. We see him picking up something. I couldn't tell what he's picking up, maybe some keys. But he says to the guy that finally walks up to this place that he's obviously making this exchange, like, "Uh, I've been waiting for 20 minutes. And the guy's like, yo, chill out. And so Joe, upon making the exchange, punches the guy in the face and says, don't make me wait. Uh, Pretty angrily, this is kind of his first big outburst of the movie where you get a sense like this guy has has kind of a rage side to him. This character really reminds me of Ryan Gosling in Drive. I can't bring up this kind of trio of movies between this, Bronson, and Drive enough. There is a lot of kind of parallels uh, because he's this subdued character who then has a really violent, destructive side to him. The character is given a bit more of a tragic backstory and detailing in this movie than Drive, but Drive does it better in that there's more emotion out of Ryan Gosling and things like that, even though I like Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, more as an actor, I would say. The kind of artistic aspects of this movie and some of the detailing helps, but some of the plot points aren't as strong as the plot points in Drive. Anyway, I'm going to try and stop comparing the two as I go through the rest of this podcast. Anyway, we then see uh, Joe in kind of this ice chamber, kind of ice room, doing some therapy, obviously, Uh, and he's obviously reliving his past. He's like saying words as you are interspersed i believe this is where we get one of the big war flashbacks where he's dealing with some prisoners of war in his army uniform he's on the ground just kind of quick details that never show him like in direct conflict or anything they're just kind of him doing various stuff uh in the desert wherever he is and he's kind of reliving these things in this ice room he starts singing that song again he was just singing with his mom uh it's something like an abc's kind of uh song where b is for beautiful or whatever Probably has some deeper meaning about his life. Not going to pick up too much on it. Joe then drives off in a rental car, I believe, that he picked up earlier. He's driving around the city, and he pulls up at this place. Obviously, he's now starting the job with the senator's daughter. Uh, Pulls up at this place. He turns his lights off, adjusts his rearview mirror so that he's looking in the rearview mirror back at the building that he's going to eventually break into. We've all seen, I mean, how many times have we seen a good rearview mirror shot? All the time, right? This is just another one of those. I'd say it's done pretty well. Who doesn't love a good rearview mirror shot in a film? Uh, Joe kind of hangs his head out the window. Some nice lighting effects. All the lighting in this movie really looks fantastic. Uh, He sees a guy walk up and out of the building. Just, you know, some activity going on. And so then he gets out of the car and asks the guy that just came out, like, hey, how do you get to whatever street? And this whole time you're focused on the car door that he just opened. We're just focusing on that as he left the frame and you can hear him talking to this guy. So you hear him say, like, how do I get to this street? And then you hear these kind of punching sounds and Joe drags the guy back into his car, pins him in his car and asks everything about the building, where the girls are, how much security, cameras, all that stuff. Uh, And then duct tapes the guy, even though the guy's kind of begging, saying, I don't work here or I only work here. I'm not involved with any of these activities because it is pretty clear at this point that the senator's daughter has been kidnapped to what is pretty much like a illegal 
obviously terrible child brothel, I guess is the word. I don't know. Obviously, these little girls are being kidnapped and having some uh, some bad things done. I don't think I need to delve into it too much. Some bad things done by some older men. Uh, and then we get one of my favorite sequences in the movie, not just because it's one of the first points of actual plot in this movie, but more because of how it's filmed. Now, we've seen security camera footage all the time, as I just mentioned with rear view mirror shots, that that was a little bit more of uh, a stretch than this. We've seen security camera angles all the time. This is one of my favorite sequences with it, though. We get all the rooms established. We see Joe enter a frame, come into the next, and it's all done with this old-fashioned like gramophone, gramophone music in the background. And I just love this sequence as he's breaking in. He's hitting some people with his hammers. It's all in black and white done through these security cameras. I mentioned this in the spoiler-free section. I really do enjoy this part of the movie. So this uh, security camera sequence ends, and we get a quick cut of the girl that Joe is trying to rescue. Her name is Nina, and she's doing the same kind of counting down thing that Joe has been doing. And now it becomes apparent that this is kind of a parallel between the two. Joe would count when he had his head in the plastic bag, trying to drown out the sounds of his parents arguing and just have it all pass. Nina obviously is getting abused. She's trying to have it all pass by just kind of passing the time, keeping her mind occupied in any way possible. But Joe walks in, picks her up, uh, some other people come in, and then Joe takes her and leads her out of the house. We see the carnage of the bodies he's taken. Uh, The shots here look fine. Joe lets the guy he had tied up in his car go, and they get in the car, and the girl is sitting just kind of staring out the window, just like, she has this blank expression the whole movie, which is, I guess, what her character needed, but it's not exactly showcasing the actress in any way. Either way, it's okay. And she thanks Joe, gives him a hug, and starts to kiss him, and Joe's like, no, you don't need to do that. So we can see that this girl has almost been, like, brainwashed of the things she has to do, Uh, obviously pretty clear that she has not been living a very she has not been given a very good situation by whoever took her as we still don't know who her captors are we just know that senator vado wanted her back uh we get a fairly pointless scene of her stopping to use the bathroom in a parking garage again like some of these menial tasks like i say they work some of them make no sense and don't do anything for the movie and this is a perfect example there's no symbolism or depth you could pull possibly from this scene it's so pointless and that was one of the things i really hated about this movie but anyway joe takes nina back to this kind of hotel where he's stationed we see him pass the lobby guy who's listening to music with some earbuds and they go and sit in joe's room which has a really cool green wallpaper which provides this really cool lighting the whole time uh joe's kind of looking of the picture that he had to rescue her he turns the tv on And we see that Senator Votto has actually committed suicide. Apparently he fell from a roof, uh, or rather jumped from a roof, obviously, uh, over claims of sexual misconduct. And we're like, what? That doesn't make much sense. Wasn't he just rescuing his daughter from that? Uh, And we'll find out a little bit more of that in just a second. But for a second, that's kind of a bit of a plot twist. It's not a huge deal. But you're like, well, what's Joe going to do with Nina now? But that question quickly goes to the side because the lobby guy knocks on the door. Joe opens it. The lobby guy is just staying there for a split second, and someone comes up and shoots him through the head, uh, and all this blood comes on Joe. This is the first true gory, bloody moment in the movie. All the parts of Joe beating up people with a hammer are blocked by Joe himself, so you're not seeing what's happening, and you definitely don't see much of the carnage. This is the one exception so far. Joe looks stunned as all this blood comes splattering onto his face. 
Uh, it's a great quick moment where you're just like, what in the world just happened? Joe's held at gunpoint and drops to the bed where Nina's sitting. Nina has no reaction to anything, uh, which bothers me at some point. You'd think some of these things would at least elicit some sort of uh, emotion from her, but I guess not. Nina gets kidnapped by one of the guys who just shot the lobby boy through the head. Joe sits there as the other guard stays there with Joe as Nina's carried out, and Joe goes, look, man, I'm just a hired gun. I don't know what's going on with this whole thing. And he's talking to the guy. He's like, yo, I don't know what's going on. And he stops mid-sentence, thrusts the table in front of him into the guy, and ruthlessly beats him up. The action is not done very well here. Like I said, most of the action in this movie is quick spurts of it, and it's mainly hidden or you just see the aftermath of it. I really like the aftermath aspect. I'll touch on that in a little bit later scene. But the action here is just really close-up shaky cam that it, it doesn't do anything for me. You know Joe is beating him up, but it'd be a lot cooler if you saw Joe just being a tank and like fully taking down these guys. But we do get a great shot of the mirror that's apparently on the ceiling, I guess. That's kind of weird, but a gunshot goes off and shatters it, and we get the shot of the mirror where we see these cracks in the mirrors and we see the reflection of Joe strangling the lobby guy, basically in the position that Javier Bardem is in, in No Country for Old Men, the first time we see him basically underneath this guy and strangling him. Joe takes down this guy, gets up, and you're like, all right. And here we have another pointless task that Joe does that serves the movie in no way. He uh, pulls out one of his own teeth, and there's no reason given for this. Maybe it was coming out after the fight or anything, but it just angers me, some of these scenes, because so much more could have been done with some of these moments to deepen Joe's character, and I, I guess that that's what the director was going for in some of these, but they're just done very poorly in some of these scenes. I mean, I respect what they were going for, but, I mean, there's no relevance to that, to him pulling out a tooth. Maybe there's symbolism like, oh, now he's really kind of getting his hands dirty, but that doesn't make much sense. He's already been doing that, and that's a really, really far stretch of symbolism for uh, my taste. But we see Joe go to uh, some house, uh, presumably his other house. I don't know. It's not his mom's house. Uh, I guess he doesn't live with his mom now that I'm thinking about it. He goes and sits down on a couch. We see this kind of thought come into Joe's eyes, as he, and then he gets in his car and speeds off. And it's a bit unclear to me what happens next, because Joe shows up at the office where the boss who gave him the Vado job is, and we originally see the head of the boss just kind of sitting there, and the office is in the background. Upon first viewing, I didn't notice this, but the light switch has blood all over it. It's a little bit of a minor detail, but alludes to what's happening in literally five more seconds because then we cut to Joe sitting on a couch staring at the boss, and we cut back to the boss, and his hands and wrists have been all slitted, and he is obviously dead, and there's blood all over his table. And why this is unclear is because I have no idea if Joe killed this guy because this guy got him into this crazy situation, or if the guys who just kidnapped Nina did it because they didn't want Nina kidnapped and they know this guy was associated with all of it and it's never explained. So some of this storytelling that doesn't use a lot of dialogue and doesn't give a lot of explanation, some of it can be deciphered, but because some of this plot gets convoluted with who's kidnapping who and who's associated with who as this movie uh, goes on from this point, it's really hard to tell. So I have no idea what happened in that scene, but it is cool the way it's revealed. I will give it that. Uh, Joe then uses the telephone to dial Angel, the guy he made a deal with in the convenience store. Not entirely sure what he was calling him for, but the guy doesn't answer. Uh, and Joe is calling from the blood splatter table as we see it through the bottom of the table, which is glass table. I guess I like that shot as well. 
Uh, and then here for a fact, I know we get some of those splices of Joe's past uh, of his mom hiding under a table as his dad walks around tossing stuff all over, silver, silverware's fall, falling, and he's holding a hammer, and Joe's got the, the plastic bag over his head in his room in his closet. I guess it's just kind of giving this idea where, again, he doesn't have any control of what's going on right now. I, I think that's how I read into this use of it uh, in this particular scene, which I really enjoy uh, if my theory is correct, I think that's a cool little application of it. Like I said, this movie does use flashbacks very well. Then we see Joe breaking into his mom's house. He goes in through a window, and again, it seems like he has this thought in his eyes, and you're like hoping nothing bad has happened, but he walks into his mom's room, and sure enough, she has a pillow over her head with a clear bullet hole straight down through the pillow and a pool of blood under her neck. You can't actually see her face or her head. And so obviously, these guys that just kidnapped Nina know who Joe is. You're starting to think maybe this guy Angel is getting payback because Joe cut off his ties. That's revealed not to be true in about five minutes. But still, it's unclear how all of Joe's associates, like his mom, are realized by these kidnappers. Maybe they do go through Angel, and that's kind of a weird alliance thing there. All the villains, the villain I say in quotations, all the kind of enemy uh, plot points and associations, like I said, it's almost impossible to decipher what's going on with the associations there because there's really no dialogue or aha moment uh, for the rest of this movie that reveals any of that. But Joaquin Phoenix does have some great acting here where he's reacting to his mother's death, but still in that subdued Joe way that really kind of continues to build his character. He even moves the pillow, an action I feel most people would be uh, hesitant to do and sees the aftermath of what happened Obviously, he's devastated. We get some more cutbacks of, you know, his dad dropping the hammer and flashback and all that. Uh, but Joe hears some people downstairs, so sure enough, he goes down, and it's insinuated that he just destroys these guys because then we cut, and one of the guys is uh, dead on the ground. The other one's suffering with a gunshot, uh, it seems. And Joe's just, like, drinking, watching this guy die, beats up on him a little more and stomps on him and stuff. Uh, and then Joe sits down as we get this uh, nice kind of uh, old-fashioned music still playing, if I remember. A lot of these action scenes have this kind of gramophone stuff going on, which I thought was a pretty cool use. I always like the use of that oldies music, no matter the film. That's just my taste, I guess. And Joe lays down with this guy as the guy uh, kind of is almost begging for his life in a way, but decides to reveal everything that's going on to Joe. This was, a, again, hard to believe. I'm having a hard time with all these villain plots. Again, I give it a 7 because I respect what it was going for. If I really had to judge it, this movie does edge on a six. Uh, I have a lot of problems with it, but I- I'm going to stick with my seven. I'm not going to go back and try to nitpick and change what I what my first impression was upon viewing. Anyway, Joe finds out that these guys are apparently hired by Governor Williams, I think. Uh, Governor Williams has been mentioned before in the movie. Uh, and basically reveals that Governor Williams has a daughter, I believe. I mean, it's it's so convoluted what this guy's explaining that I could have this completely wrong. So, you know, you can take my word for it. You can read synopsis, uh, the synopsis on IMDb or Wikipedia. Those might be right or wrong, too. I have no idea. But it's it, my read of it was that Governor Williams has a daughter, Senator Votto has a daughter. They were both trading daughters to abuse, uh, to sexually abuse, I guess. I mean... It's really uh, complicated uh, how this all plays out. All I know is that Senator Votto obviously got caught up in some of these accusations about this and committed suicide, so that's a bit more apparent now. But Governor Williams hasn't really been a character in this movie, so that just kind of pops out of nowhere. Oh, well. Uh, again, the, the 
part I'm most critical of this movie is some of the plot workings, but Joe kind of goes back and sees his mother one last time as he also spends a quick moment singing with the guy that uh, just explained all this to him, but at least Joe now has a sense of what's going on. And Joe then uh, takes his mother, uh, obviously puts her in his car because we see him looking in a rearview mirror, just like kind of generally disheartened. And then he goes out, puts her in a body bag. We don't see that happen. We just see the body bag and goes out to this pond. This whole setting looks very beautiful. And Joe wades into the water with her, goes down. And I love every shot that happens after this because we get some of the mother's hair curling out of the body bag. It's a little bit terrible to watch and say, oh, I love that shot. But it's very, like, if you watch this movie, you know all these shots are very well done. Uh, These kind of curls, these interesting colors. And the water is this general green beam of light that is illuminating Joaquin Phoenix's silhouette and him holding the body bag. And it is really beautiful. One of the best-looking uses of that color I've ever seen. And by that color, I don't just mean green. I mean this kind of turquoise-ish color that's used a lot for underwater scenes. But the rest of the frame is black. And he drops the body bag, and we get this sense that he's even considering going down too. Like I said, there's kind of allusions to this guy being suicidal, but it's never confirmed. Another read I have is that he's counting down to drown himself. Uh, I could be totally wrong in that. A lot of my reads are probably wrong about this movie in general. I can't say that enough. But then we see Nina, I guess it is, also floating in the water. This is obviously just a hallucination, but it's kind of symbolism for Joe remembering, no, there's still something for me to do. Like, I can't just give up on Nina who's been kidnapped. I guess that's what it is. Uh, I mean, that's the the most obvious read and pretty much the only read that works there. So he swims out of the water. Uh, doesn't seem to have a ton of, uh, like, remorse about his mother's death. He's obviously sad, but again, Joaquin Phoenix's here performance here is very very low in extreme emotion, so, yeah. And uh, he gets on this bus or train or whatever. Uh, We see a cut of Nina sitting on a bed, and at first I thought this was Senator Vado. Maybe it's Governor Williams, but Senator Vado obviously wouldn't make much sense. Just know that Senator Vado, Governor Williams, and Nina, and a bunch of other people are involved in this crazy, like, illegal brothel or something. So all of them are bad, and Nina needs to be rescued. That's all I'm going to say for the rest of this time because I, I can't even begin to figure out who's, do, who's done what. But uh, Joe shows up to Governor Williams' office because there's some campaign posters that can be inferred. We see Governor Williams get out of this building. Again, he looks similar to Senator Votto, so sometimes I don't even know because uh, you only see Governor Williams at a distance as well. But he obviously gets into this kind of Secret Service truck. Uh, Johnny Greenwood's score here is very similar to There Will Be Blood with these kind of jarring... Uh, chords. Sometimes it's violin. Sometimes I think it's guitar. Not entirely sure. My musical knowledge is limited at best. But uh, I really enjoy it. A lot of people dislike Johnny Greenwood's work in uh, general for not his career in Radiohead, obviously, but for his scores. I find it always fits the movies it's been used in. If it were in some other movies, I'd probably find it intolerable, but it always works for when it's used. Anyway, we get this kind of montage of this car driving. Joe's obviously tailing, and we cut to a great shot, a head-on shot of the estate that they ended up at, and some shots of the interior of the estate. We get a nice hallway and a kitchen and stuff. And basically, this next scene plays out like the security camera scene where you're seeing Joe enter and exit frames, frames that have already been established that have people in them that he's then going through. 
and destroying people in it. Uh, sometimes you see that happening, sometimes you don't. It's just this time it's not filmed from a security camera, it's just filmed from various angles. So we see the carnage he's leaving behind of a guy wrecked at the gate, and then we see the bedroom he's eventually going to go to, and then we see him wreck a guy in the kitchen, and then uh, he eventually ends up at the bedroom. So it kind of flips between where he's going, what he's currently doing, and then eventually he ends up at that place where you saw he was going. And he walks in, and this is like a weird reveal. A reveal that is not entirely believable for me, I guess, is that uh, Governor Williams is in there with his throat slit, and he's obviously dead. And it is clear that the only person who could possibly have done this, because it was the only person that I believe is in the room, I mean, it's it's definitely clear in, in just a minute, but it's obviously Nina. So I find this hard to believe just on a physical level, because let's be honest, Nina is like a 14-year-old girl or something, and this is Governor Williams, who's obviously an adult male, and uh, somehow she gets the best of him and slices his throat or something, but I don't know. Uh, I mean, the next scene pretty much disregards that because you're so focused on what's about to happen, and that's not a major plot point of what's about to happen. What you're so focused on is that Joaquin Phoenix destroys this next scene with his acting. He's basically having this breakdown because his skills of carnage and stuff that Nina has has obviously witnessed has transferred onto her, and he has this kind of regret about that. I really liked that aspect of it because there's so many parallels between the two, and we can see how one impacts the other. And this is a much more extreme impact than, you know, some sort of moral passing on or teaching or anything. But I enjoy it here, even though it is a little hard to believe when you think about it in the overall scheme of just, you know, human nature. But Joaquin Phoenix does a great job acting here. He's really breaking down the biggest show of emotion we've seen from him all movie. It's clear he's reaching a breaking point. It's still not extreme, but it's done in the tone of the movie, so I enjoy it. He takes off his shirt for some reason, another kind of pointless thing that happens here, and uh, but then we see him start to wander the halls again. He's just stunned at like what he's done, you know, how he's been wrapped up in all this. He wanders the halls. He goes downstairs. He looks in this living room uh, where we have this kind of you know clacking score again, and he sees these click quick kind of hallucinations of his mother in that room or of him with a, a towel over his head, which we saw in that ice room earlier in the movie. Just him, you know, reflecting on everything he's gone through, I guess, uh, and some shots of him as a kid. And then he walks into the dining room. This scene is just weird. We see Nina eating dinner, but she has blood all over her hands, so it's getting all over the silverware and all over the food. This There's a case to be made that this whole thing is some hallucination and maybe joe just rescued her again i mean who knows with this movie man there's so much weird symbolism and i while i enjoy the aspect that sometimes you don't know what's real and what's reality because a lot of directors will cop out and put a filter on stuff or put it in black and white if it's a flashback and i like that sometimes you're not sure if what you just watched happened uh in terms of reality or happened already in the timeline but this is just a weird use of that i guess uh in this specific scene but we cut and we go to possibly my favorite scene in the movie um there's a lot of great moments in this movie but no great scenes because there's not really any official scenes i would say in this movie they're just kind of quick takes of things joaquin phoenix is doing but this is like one true scene and one of the most interestingly executed joe's a little bit cleaned up uh he's at kind of this diner with uh Nina, and I don't remember what exactly they're talking about at first, but it's clear, you know, he's now rescued her, and he's reflecting, like, now he has her to take care of. I mean, he lost his mother, but now he has someone he has left an impact on that he now has a responsibility for and presumably has to take care of. Um, 
But the the key moment is Nina gets up to, I guess, go to the bathroom or whatever. And Joaquin Phoenix there is just sitting there, still stunned, you know, just kind of uh, reflecting, it seems. And out of nowhere, pulls out a gun and kills himself. And I'm like, what in the world just happened? Is the movie going to end like this? Uh, And what happens next, a lot of people could see as a cop-out. I love it, though. Uh, Basically, the waitress comes up and, like, puts a bill there, even though there's blood all over the bill. And she's like... Have a good day, sir. And Joaquin Phoenix is just lying dead on the table. So, you know, obviously that's a little weird. But then Nina comes back and it cuts and turns out Joaquin Phoenix is just asleep. And she wakes him and says, wake up, Joe. It's a beautiful day. And Joe reiterates, yeah, I guess it is. It's a beautiful day. Where are you going? I'm wherever you want. Where do you want to go? I don't know. One thing I want to mention is they have this kind of old-timey music, and if you listen to the lyrics, it says, If I knew you were coming, I'd have baked a cake. And it's just kind of this clear symbolism that, like, this is a new thing for Joe. He clearly wasn't expecting this to happen. He would have been more prepared if he knew that Nina was now going to be with him, but it's just the situation he's going to have to deal with. So I like that symbolism, even though it's a little bit more obvious than some of these things. It's probably the most obvious one in the movie, but I definitely enjoy that quick use, especially because it kind of blends into the background of the scene. And uh, the movie ends, and we see the credits scroll by on that exact booth that they were sitting in in this restaurant. Now, let me go back over that scene, though. I love it, because it's this last example of, like, Joe is so messed up. Like, even now, he's made an impact. He has kind of a reason to keep doing stuff. or he He has kind of a reason, a motivation, not just to live, but, like, a meaning to his life. He's still so, like, scarred from not not necessarily everything from not only everything he's been through in this film, but everything from his past, obviously. So I just really like this movie that I thought was going to be a twist, even though they kind of cop back out of it. I think it's done really well to prove this one last time in the most extreme way possible that this guy has been internally just destroyed and mentally destroyed as well, I guess, for lack of a better word. And he's still recovering from all of that, even now, even now that he has some sort of kind of light in his life that it's just going to be a struggle no matter what. There's 50,000 other readings you could have for this. Uh, like I said like I said before, this is just how I see it. I see some of this stuff on more of a surface level a lot of times, unless I'm really getting into the, into the analysis. You, ha- you have to do a bit of analysis to even remotely enjoy this movie. So, you know, I guess that's 
all I have to say about that. But like I said, then the movie ends. So uh, that's it for the spoiler full section. I went through some of these moments, talked about what I liked, what I didn't like. Uh, again, this was probably the first episode where I was being a little bit more critical of stuff, especially in this spoiler full section. And like I said, mainly it had to do with the plot. I always respect efforts in terms of sound, score, cinematography, direction, all that stuff, even if they don't always work out. The one thing I always require is a good story, and that story can get a little convoluted here in in the way it's lost into some of the artistic stuff and the character study. Even though, I mean, he even have a character study. You have to have a guiding concept, and while this movie has that guiding concept, it gets messy towards the end. But I'd love to know what you guys think of this movie. Obviously, uh, you know, if you liked this podcast, be sure to rate it. Be sure to subscribe. Be sure to tell your friends. I uh, thank you for listening. And again, even if you don't like these movies, there's always a reason to watch them. So I will reiterate, if you want some cool experimental directing, if you want a solid performance from Joaquin Phoenix, if you want some great lighting in this movie, great lighting. I know nobody goes into watching a movie like, let me see some great lighting. But you, trust me, you're going to enjoy the, the way this movie looks. It has a very nice aesthetic to it. If you like There Will Be Blood, you might want to tune into this one for some nice Johnny Greenwood scores. If you liked Bronson, which was uh, obviously episode three, you might like this movie as well. This movie is definitely not as well executed in its concepts as well as Bronson. As Bronson, but I'd say this movie is worth checking out because I think all movies, to an extent, are worth checking out. Uh, would I go out and recommend this to my friends? Maybe. It depends on the friend. Uh, that might be a gauge I apply to some of these movies so you have an idea. But uh, but yeah, I wouldn't say run out and see it, but definitely a movie that if you have some spare time, I would say check out. Why not? You know, give it a watch. Uh, I can definitely say it's not the taxi driver of our generation. I mean, that's just that was too bold a claim for me to even follow through with it while I was watching the movie. Uh, and upon you know thinking about it, it's definitely not. Uh, again, this is a movie that you're going to have to analyze a little bit after to really pull out some of the meaning, or really just to generally enjoy it, not just to get the themes, but just to know like what happened. You're going to have to do some synopsis research, I guess. But is that a bad thing? Not always. So, you know, that's personal taste. Again, thank you guys for listening. Uh, that's about it for this episode. Next episode, as I mentioned in the Bronson episode, will be a panel of me, Grant, and Mason talking about some new trailers. We go through everything from... Aquaman and some other superhero movies to wildlife uh, new family drama coming soon to Serenity which nobody knows what's about Uh, you'll understand that once you listen to the episode to First Man a little bit of everything I think you'll enjoy it so be sure to tune in for that episode but we'll have lots of episodes coming your way as we continue to watch movies as a group or just comment on movies that we've already seen in the past so again thank you for listening to Study episode 4 you were never really here uh, again, be sure to leave us some ratings uh, if you enjoyed this podcast and, you know, just get us out there. We're trying to, you know, at least jumpstart this thing, get it, get the ball rolling. Look for some announcements coming soon regarding having an email, having some social media accounts, all that stuff. Uh, but again, that's it for Study. So signing off, I'm host Dylan, and thank you for listening. And like I always mention, we still do not have a closing catchphrase. So we'll catch you later. Thank you for listening to Study. 